Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. Well, I've been playing around with a、uh, a fun feature in Elm Review that we haven't、uh, we haven't really talked about before. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> Where's the pun? <laughs> the pun? Where's the pun, man? I've got to keep you on your toes, Yeroon. The pun the pun might spring out at any point. <laughs> uh, uh, we started the recording, and I was like, "Oh no, I forgot he was is going to do a pun, and I'm not prepared." <laughs> the one and, time, and the you, one time you were mentally preparing, kind of on the late side, and, and now you're like, "There's no pun." <laughs> What? I thought I could extract a reaction from you. So, okay, okay, that, that that's fine then. Yeah, <laughs> we we have standards, man. That's why we have linters. We need standards. We got to deliver. <laughs> so,、uh, so today we we haven't really talked about this on the podcast, but there's this whole feature that's kind of like pretty powerful in Elm Review, the extractors. So, yeah, do you want to tell us what Elm Review extractors are? Yeah, sure. So Elm Review has this new feature, which is extractors, which allows you to gain insight into your codebase. So,、um, you run an Elm Review rule. And it's going to gather a lot of of information, and then it's going to be able to give you that information as a JSON output, and you can read that JSON, and you can figure out、uh, whatever information you wanted. So, what kinds of information can you get? Well, that entirely depends on you and on the rules that you've enabled or written. So, one very ex-、uh, small example that I made、uh, is making an import graph of your modules. So. What Elm Review is going to do is it's going to、uh, look at all the、uh, look at your whole Elm project, and it's going to notice. Okay, well, this module is importing this thing,、uh, this other module,、uh, this other module is importing that module, and so on and so on. And it's going to internally make a graph、uh, of the imports, and at the end, it just says, "Well, I've made those into a graph or a list of."、Um, Uh, arrows, and then this is now like it's going to format it as a mermaid diagram or a dot graph diagram, right. and you can now use that to generate、uh, an image using the dot specification, the mermaid specification, whatever. So, but, but this information is just like one rule is saying, well, I'm going to gather this information and then present it as a as a graph. It's not something that is built into Elm Review. It's just Whatever you configure your rule to do, right? It's yeah. It's really it's like allowing the context that you have that you build up in Elm Review to escape from the bounds of Elm Review to the outside world, so you can use it in external tools however you want. So it's yeah. It's really like、um, so you've got like、um, you know if for anyone who's familiar with writing Elm Review rules and you know. Using visitors to to update the context, which we've talked about in previous episodes, that would be akin to your update function, updating your model. You you know you you have in the Elm architecture this、uh, tuple you return from update of the model and commands, and in Elm review, visitors can change the context, which would be like updating the model,、mm-hmm. and、Very、they can、too. return errors or fixes. Uh, which would be like running a command, but、uh, extractors instead of resulting in fixes and reporting errors, you can you're given the context at the end of running the the rule, 
and then you can turn that into JSON, right? That's all it, that's all it really is. Absolutely. Yeah. But the, what you can do with that is it's anything, anything that you can do by visiting an Elm project, extracting context from that and turning that into JSON. Now you have access to that in any external tool. So we said it's JSON, but in, in practice, it's whatever can be encoded as JSON. So if you, if you just want it to be YAML, then you just make a string that is form, uh, YAML format in practice. Uh, the, the, the way to use this, this uh, feature is to call the Elm Review CLI with uh, dash dash extract and also dash dash reports equals JSON. Otherwise, you won't get the extracts. Uh, and then we'll give you a JSON, but that contains arbitrary JSON. So if you want it to be a string that contains a YAML, or is it in YAML format? That's fine. Uh, that's kind of what I do with the uh, imports graph because that's just dot specification strings. Right. Right. So you can, yeah, it's it's JSON at the top level, but inside of those JSON values, it might just be a single JSON string, which is actually a different data format. Yeah, I've. I think there are a few different ways that you could approach. I mean, it, it depends on what you're trying to do with it, you could directly encode some format if you need some mermaid format or some markdown format or whatever you want to encode to, you could just directly encode to those data formats. If you're consuming it from another Elm app, then you could use something like Elm Codec to share your codec to encode the JSON data and then decode using code sharing between the code bases if you're consuming it and and extracting from from Elm code. So, well, this might be a good opportunity. Uh, you're in this might be a bit of an intervention. Actually, it turns out I, I uh, I've spoken to you about my idea of, um, of Elm <laughs> okay. code, Elm pages, code gen review. <laughs> so Elm pages, code gen review. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Are you sure it's not Elm Review pages code gen? We can we can negotiate uh, okay, which okay. which comes first. Absolutely, I'm I'm open to that. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the main point. So, well, I I recently um, kind of brought my my Elm pages code gen idea to fruition, and I'm quite happy with it. Um, I kind of joked about that in our Elm code gen episode with Matt Griffith, but the challenge there being what was your idea again right so okay so there are elm pages scripts uh elm pages v3 has this thing called a backend task which you know it's like a pretty full featured api for reading files from the file system and doing globs to list out files and reading environment variables and handling failures if something if there's a fatal error you can pass that up at the top level of the script and it will report that with rich information or you can handle fatal errors and uh, make sure that you've handled every possible failure. So now Elm Code Gen, we did an episode on that. It's an amazing tool that lets you write Elm Code to generate Elm Code. And it, you know, to me, its main superpower is giving you like these sort of... um type safe ways to to put together bits of code and make sure that you're passing them the data that they need because it creates these little stubs for different 
package like bindings for different packages that helps you make sure you're generating valid code for those APIs. It also has a little CLI tool that helps you generate code. But then the challenge becomes, okay, well, but now I want to pass in some data to it. So, okay, it, the the CLI that Elm Code Gen provides gives you this little hook that lets you um, pass in some JSON data. And then, well, what if you want to read an environment variable? Okay, well, encode that into JSON and pass that in as a flag when you call the Elm Code Gen CLI. And then, well, what if you want to read, you know, you want to read an environment variable, you want to read a file and pass in that context? You kind of have to hack something together. Yeah, it feels like you need to do a bash script uh, right. to gather the information and then call Elm Code Gen. Exactly. And, and then, like, well, should Elm Code Gen give you access to environment variables? Should it give you a first-class way to do that? Should it give you a first-class way to read files? Should it uh, give you a nice way to um, do error handling and report that something went wrong? Which it does. But at a certain point, it's like becoming a more general-purpose sort of scripting thing. So, And that's sort of like back-end task is a pretty general-purpose way of doing that sort of thing. Elm Pages scripts, I've like put a lot of polish into making it like you just do... Elm Pages run path to your Elm Pages script, which is in a script project folder, and it figures out how to compile and run it. And you can even do, you know, Elm Pages bundle script, and it will compile and minify that down to a single executable JS file. So you can just uh, chmod it, make it executable, and run it. And if you ha- have Node installed, it'll just run as a single file with all the dependencies in line. So like. Should Elm, like Elm Cogen, if it tries to, is going to creep too far towards that. And we're going to end up like reinventing the wheel over and over. And then like, well, what about Elm Review? Like, should it, because there are certain things you might want to do. You might want to write some of that context to a file. You might So at a certain point, you run into a similar thing. And so I was, I was recently, uh, hacking on some of these ideas that we talked about in our element AI episode. And I was um, making an Elm pages script that calls the uh, GPT four API and uh, super fun. And I essentially wanted to take like the, the in scope type annotations, kind of like we talked about, like what, what values are in scope? Like what are the direct dependencies that are available to me? And what are the like, values that are in scope, the let values, the parameters that are in scope, right? Elm Review knows. So that you can feed all of that information to GPC. Exactly. That okay, I can yep. I can seed the prompt with that context. So like Elm Review isn't you know, you're not gonna make Elm Review something that can like make HTTP requests and like do scripting tasks and write something to a file or print arbitrary things to the console. Like at a certain point, you run mm-hmm. into the same problem, right? Yeah. So Elm review pages code gen. <laughs> Dash GP- GPT. <laughs> because essentially like I want to bridge the gap between like, I essentially want to make an Elm review rule that is like a context gatherer. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Which is good because that's exactly what the Nelm View rule does. It gathers context. It ga- yeah, it gathers context. And then instead of saying, like, defining a data extract, like with data extractor that turns it into JSON, I want to say, like, here's my Elm Pages script, and here is my Elm review rule that gathers context, pass that in as an argument to my Elm Pages script, and then, given that context, I can now execute a script. Which calls Elm Cogen. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the Elm Cogen thing, I already, um, I mean, it's actually fairly straightforward you just in your um in your elm pages script project folder so just like elm review has a project folder a review folder that's just a regular elm project elm pages scripts also have you know by convention you can call it a script folder but it's just any elm project which has elm pages installed as a dependency by the way i really like that we've kind of started using this pattern that I, I think yes, me too. I introduced I, I believe so. I, that's definitely what yeah. clued me it, into it. I mean, it, it's like, a oh, it's a folder for configuration. But it's like, yeah, but it works really well. So Cause, Yeah, because you can think of it just like a regular Elm project. You can use your editor tooling, and it understands what an Elm project is. So, yeah, it's amazing. So in that script project folder, you just have an Elm code gen project like the generated source as a source directories mm, yeah and then you're good to go so then you generate the elm cogen bindings there that's all you really need right so there's not that much to that you know sort of combining those two tools together it it's actually a pretty loose coupling but it works well so yeah i've definitely thought about like how this could be done yeah. with so, elm so- review and elm pages yeah, so you were mentioning it was an, an intervention. What do you mean with an intervention? <laughs> uh, the intervention is... And where's my family? Can, can, I pressure, <laughs> can I pressure you? We're worried about you, Jeroen. And uh, we really think that you need to make Elm Review Pages Cogen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be an interesting thing to explore. It's, it's sort of this question of like... So like, potentially... If Elm Review had a way to to call it through like some Node.js dependency, so you could like imp- import some Node.js version of Elm Review and run it, mm-hmm. that could be interesting. Okay, you, you mean calling Node um, calling Elm Review programmatically instead of exactly right? Because basically, I mean, so you you can certainly use you can certainly like build up project context and use like a codec to share your encoders and decoders. And, um, and that works, that works pretty well. Actually, Lambda, the Lambda compiler also has these, this sort of undocumented way to create, uh, encoders, decoders of bytes encoders. And so I've definitely considered like just hacking together a little prototype that I think I could I could do this, assuming that they're serializable values. Things like functions are not. That's one benefit to doing it this other way, where you can programmatically call Elm Review, because then it can execute this Elm code for you. So it's it's interesting. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like this is a really powerful feature, and I think we should like build more cool stuff with it. 
I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to convince you otherwise. <laughs> like, yeah, I've announced it, I think, in November, even though the feature was released probably a little bit earlier than that. No, it, I announced it in December, but it was released in November. Yeah, it's a uh, writing blog post is a pain sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of any cool things people have built with it? No, uh, in practice, or at least people have not told me. They haven't shared it. Well, yeah. listener, if you have built something cool with it, tell your own because He's interested. open source maintainers like to know those things. Yeah, yeah they, they like feedback, <laughs> yes. especially good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I had a really good time building with it, like just being able to like do a direct dependency visitor and extract that information is so nice you know i mean you've built these apis for going and extracting information for for use with reporting rules and fixes so why not break it outside of the box yeah i did add extractors to a few of the rules that i made yeah some some of them published and some of them i haven't yet at least so for instance uh, i have this um rule for licenses uh, which is called no approved license which is basically going to forbid you from using licenses that your project has not um, uh, cleared, have not right. accepted. Like, for instance, huh. if yeah. our company is not allowed to use license uh, XYZ. GPL licenses and things, yeah. Yeah, Poison something that doesn't allow yeah. proprietary, proprietary uh, licenses. Whatever, I'm not that familiar. Uh, and this rule is going to tell you, well, this dependency is using a license that you can't use, or this this dependency is using a license that you have not uh, mentioned as being okay or not okay. So you need to ask your legal team what, what you think uh, should be done. And at my company, we are a security firm, so we need things to be good legally and security-wise. And one of the requirements that we have is that we need to to know the licenses of the things that we use. And we, we, I think we need to make it available publicly. I think I've never seen what it's, mm -hmm. what it's used like before, actually. Right. So, so every now and then, or actually every time we, we, update our, we, add our, we update our dependencies, we need to inform some legal entity in our company uh, which license we're using and which dependencies we're using. Uh, and so I've, what I've made uh, for this rule, I, I changed it so that it has a data extractor that gives you the licenses that you're using for each dependency. So dependency uh, Elm slash core is using MIT or something like that. So that's now uh, the, the process of listing the license that we have is automated, which previously we had to do manually. It's, it's not a big deal in, in the case of Elm dependency because we don't have... 50 of them. It's a lot more painful for our JavaScript dependencies or NPN dependencies, but but it's a, it's a nice thing to automate. Um, another one that I've worked on, uh, which I have not published yet because I forgot about it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, was the no-deprecated one. So yes. are you familiar with that rule? Or uh, Yeah, I think so. Does it look for like... A an at deprecated annotation or something in the yeah. doc comments? Yeah, exactly. So everything that you annotate as deprecated, either through that at deprecated uh, in the function or the modules documentation, or something that has deprecated in their name. 
which you can easily do in application code. Like, oh, this thing is deprecated, so let's rename it. That makes it obvious everywhere. This rule is really meant to be used with Elm Review Suppress, um, so that uh, all the things that you have deprecated, you will be able to continue using, but you should not add more usages of those. So Elm Review Suppress is really working very well with that rule, in my opinion. The problem, though, is that it doesn't tell you what to tackle next. Like, if, if you... like. Suppressions are meant to be resolved. They're meant to be tackled at some point. Like we should get rid of those. And the suppressions, the the suppression files are meant to be readable by human and even edited potentially. Uh, so you can see which files have the most uh, usages of deprecated things. So file A has forty seven issues. File B has twenty three. And regardless how you want to to tackle those, you can. Say, okay, well, I'm going to try to remove all the ones from file A or file B or whatever. But it only gives you like one aspect of what to tackle, like which files you should look at. But it doesn't tell you uh, what deprecated things are used most. That is something that you're going to have to look at yourself, right? And that, that can be a bit painful if you really want to, to get that information. So what I made is I added a data extractor, big surprise here, where that is exactly the information that, that you're getting out of, is which things are deprecated, and are they deprecated because the module is deprecated, or are they deprecated because they have been tagged as deprecated, and then in how many places are they used? And th then you can see, okay, well, this function, this deprecated function is used two times, Okay, that will be pretty easy to, to fix. And this function is used uh, 230 times, which you're like, okay, well, that's going to be harder. Maybe it's more interesting to tackle that one now. Um, so now you have the information of where the deprecations are, are in which files, and you have the information of which deprecated things um, are used and how often. And now you have more information to, to tackle those issues which I've found to be pretty interesting. So, so I should just focus on releasing that one. If it's not released by the time that you listen to this uh, and you're interested, uh, let me know. <laughs> like, yeah. Kick my butt, something. <laughs> Very cool. I, I like that idea a lot of it, kind of bundling a, an extractor directly into these rules. Um, that, that seems really cool. So like, do you think that that is a good general practice? Are there specific context where that works better like where a rule has context that's meaningful on its own as opposed to like like imports they don't really necessarily tell you anything whereas like licenses you just list out the licenses i don't know i haven't made any i haven't uncovered any specific rules about mm -hmm. rules mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and data extractors um it, it's like it's more like I need some insight to do some task and I need to, in order to do something. And if there happens to be a rule that's, um, that relates to that, then maybe it's interesting for that rule to do it. In the, in the instance of uh, no deprecated, the issue is how do I fix those deprecation issues? So that's really related to the rule. So I think it makes sense to have the data extractor uh, bundled along with it. Mm-hmm. 
Will it? I guess there's probably not much of a performance cost because the node deprecated is going to collect that information regardless. So then it's just like, do you encode that context to JSON or not? But does it um, does it basically skip executing the JSON encoding part if you don't use the extract flag in the CLI? Exactly. Um, I don't know if people are going to make things that are very expensive to compute, but I'm assuming it will be. So yes, I'm skipping work. If I notice that people that we're not reporting in JSON uh, format and we're not asking to, to extract something. So we will still need to collect all the information. Like there's no special case like, oh, if we're trying to extract, then we will collect things differently, which could be nice in practice, but um, it would also make the rule a lot more complex. But we will skip calling the data extractor if it's not requested. So yeah, for the licenses, like I think it makes sense to have a list of licenses that go with that rule. Yeah, could, yeah. But like, uh, for instance, like what rules could you have with no unused variables? Like, could you make a graph of what other functions could be removed right. if if we removed it? Maybe. Right. But exactly. Like, would it be worthwhile? I don't know. I don't think so yep. so far. Yeah, that's a good that's a good rule of thumb. If it's a if it's like a clear cut set of data to extract, then maybe bundle it with it. But yeah. And I mean, and you, you could potentially also, even make that configurable since Elm review is configured through plain Elm code. You could pass in options for an extractor. But I mean, at that point, I mean... Yeah, you, you could have a data extractor enabled or disabled based on configurations. It really depends on what you want, right? Right. What is the purpose of prevent extract? There's something in the Elm Review API to prevent an extractor. Yeah. So the use case I had for this was like something for detecting unused CSS or something like that. Like you could imagine that you have a rule that tries to find all the uh, CSS classes that are used in your application and returns a list of the CSS classes. Now, it's not even about unused. It's just like this rule will try to find all the CSS classes that are referenced in your Elm code. And then you can pass that into to a tool that prunes your CSS files by removing all the CSS classes that are not mentioned and so on. The problem, so f for this rule to work, like all the places where you would uh, reference a CSS class, it would have to be in known position. So for instance, if you pass a CSS class to html.attributes.class, then it's known, it's extractable, and it's easy to see, well, this value is used to be a class, or this value is a class. But if it, if you pass a variable to that function, to to the class function, then it's a lot harder to figure out what the CSS class was. And in that case, you could say, you could have the rule say, hey, I encountered something that is unknown to me and I prefer reporting an error uh, and you will have to fix it. And this is something that we have uh, at our code base at CrowdStrike. And so the user will see that there's an error, but potentially you would also want to say, well, given this problem, I don't want to give you the, the extracts. I'm going to prevent this extract or th this issue. If you ask me to do an extract and there is this kind of issue, I'm just going to give you something that is incorrect. So let me just stop the extraction. So that's what this function is for. So you, whenever you create an 
whenever you create an error, you can annotate it as preventing the extract. Right. So just to make that explicit, it's a prevent extract uh, is a function that you call on an Elm review error. So in the course of your your rule, whether it's uh, your you know your no unused CSS classes rule or whatever it might be called, you can give an error and then you can you can pass that error to prevent extract and that error will now have that special behavior that when you call it the CLI with the extract flag, that error will propagate through and prevent it from giving the final JSON for extract. Yep. That's very cool. So um, whenever you will run Elm review, extract, and report JSON, I don't like the UX so, so far because it will give you like null or undefined for, for the extract where you expected it. And you basically have to run Elm review again without those flags in order to find out which uh, errors have popped up. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, not, it's not great, but... I see. Yeah. It's good enough so far. At least right. until someone brings it, uh, lets me know of a good idea. Right. That works. I guess you could um, like have a special error format and you could provide like an error decoder. I mean, this is assuming that people are consuming it in Elm, but even if they're not consuming it in Elm, you could make it a fairly lightweight format where you give an easy to consume error message. Yeah, but the problem is that, that that could be like you would write a an arbitrary JSON value to say, hey, mm-hmm. this this didn't work out. Right. But that could also be in a valid value for that <laughs> rule right. outputs. Right. right. Totally. So I, I yeah, actually yeah. don't remember what I'd do exactly. Maybe I'd, I'd do something like uh, show an error in the JSON, but uh, in, in practice, when you run it with JQ to extract the exact information you want. You get a null. You get a null, yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit annoying. That makes sense. Yep. But if you consume this through a Node.js script, then you could do more uh, checks like, oh, if rule name dot error equals something, then exactly something bad happens or something. Yeah, it totally depends on, on how you're using it. I would like to think maybe you're using it from Elm Review Cogen pages, but... <laughs> <laughs> One pages, can dream. P- pages is now at the end. I'm I'm using it as a bargaining chip to try to build consensus. The, the, the only thing, the only part that I thought w- should not be at the beginning is cogen, and that's what you just did. So I'm, let's at least call it Elm View something or Elm Pages something. But Elm cogen is not appropriate here. I'd, I'd say, like Matt would have to come on this show and tell us otherwise. But yeah, that's true. In the that's meantime, <laughs> okay, you can have code gen first or uh, review first. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we talk about like a couple of other possible use cases? I mean, again, really, it's it's really just taking these cool features in Elm Review, which are you know giving you the ability to have visitors that look at expressions, which let you look at the abstract syntax tree of of an entire project and walking through looking at what imports for a particular module are there, what are the direct dependencies, indirect dependencies of a project, looking at the readme, looking at doc comments, and gathering up context to connect these things together. So, you know, of course, like you can imagine the kinds of context you would have to build up for 
marking certain values as unused or um, things like that. So, so building up like pretty sophisticated context about where how things connect together and things like that. So, given yeah. that, actually, on, on that topic, like Elm review is not a necessarily super easy tool to use, right? Like writing a rule takes a lot of code uh, in practice. Like if, if you have to do something really quick, I would not use Elm review rule for for to extract th- something out of the code base. Like I would use something like grep or combi or tree grepper, which Brian Hicks made a few years ago, which are like, you just say like which patterns you're interested in and you, you can then extract that information. The thing where Elm review is very powerful is it gives you a little more uh, semantic analysis. Like, you know, uh, it's easy to figure out as well, this, this function is that from a local, uh, is it defined in this in this module, or is it uh, from a an imported module or from a dependency? And if so, which one? Like the module lookup table. Exactly. Would that yeah. be what you're talking about there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially type inference. Potentially right. O- other kinds of information. And we where Elm review shines is because it's not just uh, a a specification on how you can extract uh, certain AST uh, notes or specific information from ASTs, but it, it's a it's like it, it's literally code. You can put all those contexts into uh, you, you can find connections between those contexts. So, for instance, if you want to un- detect unused variables, you need to connect all the declarations of variables with usages of the of variables. If you just try to pattern match on on nodes individually, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to have to write an external system, uh, an internal uh, external things, to be able to to deduct that, to deduce that. So that's I think where Elm review is really powerful is it allows you to put those things into context. Right. It it sounds kind of like um, you know should I use a regex or a parser for this? You yeah. Know? And exactly. if you're trying yeah. to like extract semantic information from html then regex you're going to have a bad time with because you, <laughs> you know yeah but but in some cases like especially if it's for a quick and dirty thing grab will be very good combi will be very good as well tree grabber I'm, I'm guessing as well it's probably the same thing the syntax i'm just not familiar with but if you need something that will need to be correct or something that needs to be used a lot of times some something where you need less false positives or f- less false negatives, then Elm review will be very good. <laughs> that said, in a lot of cases, like depending on the, what information you want to, to get, you will not be able to get it. Like a static analysis tool is sometimes limited, right? If you right. need dynamic values. There are certain things that Elm review makes very high level that would be a ton of work to, to gather manually. For example, like, extracting information about the direct dependencies of a project, which I was trying to do for my particular use case with this kind of AI prompting context builder. You provide like a fairly high level API where that information exists somewhere on the file system. You might even have to like run Elm make on something to like make that come into existence somewhere. Um, I actually download everything <laughs> manually. 
Like I, I look at the Elm home and if it's there, I use that. Otherwise I download things. Right. So if you're building a quick and dirty script, it's not going to be quick, but it will be dirty if you try to get that information yourself. Whereas if you use Elm review, you just get like a nice Elm type that describes the direct dependencies and all of the types and values it exposes. So that's pretty powerful. Like the one thing I see that's definitely a little tricky is like Elm review rules are not super composable. Like the, like visitors, it's hard to like bundle up visitors together. You you sort of have to say like, okay, this visitor is going to go and update the context by looking at imports and this visitor is going to update it. But you can't really have a self-contained like, all right, here's my Elm review thing that does like five different types of visitors and it gives you, you can't have like nested T, nested Elm architecture review visitors. That's like a combined visitor that somebody published as a helper. Actually, you can. Can you really? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Not in the shape that you think. Uh, the thing that is possible is you can add multiple visitors of the same type. So you can have mm-hmm. multiple with expression visitor, multiple right. with declaration visitors. Right. Oh. So the module name lookup table, which you mentioned before, is is a basically Elm review pre-computes for every node in your in your AST uh, where where something was defined. So if you have a function, is it defined in, a, in an import, uh, in a module? And if so, which one? Or if it, or is it um, defined locally? That was not in Elm review to start with. That was actually uh, in a package that I purposefully did not publish for maintenance reasons. But you could basically copy-paste that code and just add a function that says add visitors for scope i think yeah it was scope dots add visitors something and that added all the visitors that that sub rule sub information gathering thing needed to uh, modify your context like it will it was specifically modifying one for one field in your context and then then that was available to all to all the other rules uh, to all the re- other visitors so it is possible, it's just not in the way you, you want to. And in practice, it's not done very often. Like, I've basically only used it for that purpose, and I, I quite liked it. So it's still a feature that is not very well documented. And also, like, I'm thinking about like, removing it because, like, things are slightly faster if they're not a list of visitors, but it's just like a maybe visitor uh, under the hood. But... It is possible and it is a nice feature when it's necessary, I think. Mm. Would that allow you to... You probably wouldn't have access to that like prepared, finished context by the time your visitors run. Or could you? Could you make sure that those visitors all run before your visitors subsequently run so they have access to that context? Uh, yeah. yeah. You, you can? Do. Okay. Yeah. Then um, that's... Very powerful. Interesting. Yeah, it depends on what you want to do. But yeah, potentially all those those rules can do whatever they want to. Uh, Those, sorry, those helpers can gather all the information you need. 
but depending on the information, that will be more or less easy. But usually it's pretty easy. Hmm. Interesting. Because they're run in a specific order, which makes that easy. That's pretty cool. I would love to see like people sharing the cool stuff that they build with this. And like, I don't know, maybe we should host a, an Elm review extractor hackathon, Jeroen, to get... Because <laughs> there's so much cool stuff you could build with this functionality. Yeah, yeah so, so, so the, the main thing that I was thinking about, like that could be pretty, that is pretty generic uh, and it could be useful, is like extracting metrics out of your code base. So lines of code is the easy one, uh, which there are many powerful tools for that. There's just simple, the WC command line tool there's clock and there's plenty of others i'm sure um so maybe that's not the best metric but that's the kind of idea that you could do at the moment one of my colleagues is i think working on computing the complexity of the code base so there's the cognitive complexity which i made a rule for uh i think he he will probably try that first which by the way there's now a data extractor I think cool. somewhere, maybe in a branch of mine, maybe it's, maybe it's just on my computer. I I think uh, at least it would be very easy to, to make it. That, that's for sure. Because it's just extracting uh, the context to, to JSON. But yeah, there's also um, cyclomatic complexity, uh, which is, you know, the how, basically a measure of how many unit tests would you need to, to cover all the branches for a given function, and that that's a reasonably met, a reasonable metric, uh, not to tell you how to refactor your code. That's cyclomatic uh, cognitive complexity is better for that, but cyclomatic does tell you like, well, this code is pretty complex, or this code, this project is pretty complex, because there's a lot of edge cases in uh, that it needs to handle, and you could you can make a graph out of that. So. At uh, at Luxel, we we're a log product. We we just send all of our logs to to Logscale, and then we can draw, uh, make dashboards with it. And w- when we run on review in our CI, well, we have those metrics available. Well, we we can run Elm review with dash dash extract dash dash report JSON, and that gives us metrics. and And then we can extract those and try to make dashboards out of it. And yeah, then whatever metrics you think are useful to you, um, like th- this is an area where I'm not all that familiar with, like what metrics are interesting to gather t- for a technical depth finding platform or something. There's a tool called CodeScene where they basically uh, gather a lot of this information, like uh, notably the complexity, but also like the uh, get information from your code base and they say well the files that are most that are touched uh, the most often are usually the ones with bugs and we can try to uh, combine the information of how often is something touched and how complex is the the, uh, the file in terms of cyclomatic complexity and you could say well this is probably where we need to address technical debt or this is where it'd be useful to to put our eyes on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could even just uh, extract the length of certain functions, you yeah, know, as a for instance. Yeah. So Elm Review does not have access to Git information, uh, but it does have mm-hmm. access to a lot of 
other information. And I think at some point we will, I will just make it available to you to extract information from arbitrary files in your project. Yeah, cool. Uh, like just trying to be able to read CSS files and figure out which CSS files or uh, which CSS classes are available or unused even. That would be useful, I think. So that's, that's the idea behind that other thing. Yeah. It's, it's super powerful. Yeah. I mean, and you can start piecing these ideas together. You know, you start gathering metrics. I mean, you know, what metrics can you gather from a code base? Num- number of lines, number of, number of non-opaque types, perhaps. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which, like I, I don't know if there are metrics for noticing like how coupled something is, how, how right. coupled of one module to another uh, is right. to another. But if there are those things, and potentially that there's a thing that you could put it on a dashboard and try to follow and try to reduce or try to increase, I don't know. Uh, test coverage, but yeah, that's not Elm Review. <laughs> there's a different tool for that. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and there is Elm coverage, which actually works pretty darn well. But um, but yeah, like what for things like you know checking if something is not an opaque type, like as much as we would like for that to be a rule that just reports an error, error, non-opaque type found. <laughs> there are use cases where you want an exposed custom type. And um, so it's, it's not a problem. It's a, it's a thing to be aware of. And so metrics and visualizations and things like that are, are useful. So that's the kind of area where extracting information rather than reporting an error is what you want. Yeah. Like if your company or if your project has a specific use case of something that they'd like to increase or decrease or collect somehow, then you can make a rule for that. And you can extract the information and display it somewhere. But yeah, like this is really something that I have not <laughs> looked into. And clearly, like, um, I don't know what metrics are useful. So if, if people want to play with that and know like what could be useful, try it out and let me know. Yeah, I mean, you could really build like a suite of Elm code quality tools and visualizations for it with this, you know, like yeah. all the pieces are there. You could look at the number of maybes in a code base too, right? Like that's an interesting piece of information. Like maybes aren't bad, but where are there more of them? Yeah, or the number of primitives, you know, primitive obsession, that kind of right. thing. But it, yeah. It, it, metrics are always kind of scaring that thing like like do we want to decrease this number even further like sometimes yes but like it, it's not a, it's not a fixed rule that's that, that's also like an area where this can get useful it's like elm review has like it's really hard to to say well this this rule does not apply everywhere elm review basically all the rules have to be 100% correct in the sense that they don't report false positives, they can report false. Ne- they can have false negatives. You can't report false negatives. <laughs> but if you make that into, if you add an extract to, to that, then you can extract that information without enforcing it on your project. If that makes sense, that's a possibility. I don't know if that will work out, but it's it's something that you could do. I think it's really good. It's a good workflow to just like have this information and then say like, all right, what could use some refactoring? And then especially if you like cross-reference that with like 
like if you take, like you said, like Elm Review doesn't currently have access to Git information, but if you're building an extractor, you just extract what you need using Elm Review extractors and then extract some information from the command line from Git of how frequently files are changed, you know, the churn rate of certain modules. And then you can just sort of cross-reference those pieces of data in a, in a script. And um, so you say like, okay, well, this file has a lot of churn. It has a lot of non-opaque types. It has a lot of deeply nested conditional statements. It has a lot of maybes and primitive types. And it, it's churning a lot. We cha- We touch it a lot. Or maybe like bug fix commits touch this file a lot. So maybe that's a place to that that's just something to be aware of that it might be a hot spot. It doesn't mean the numbers need to go to zero because they're bad inherently. It just is something to focus your attention on when you're looking for areas to refactor. So if you're missing some information in Elm Review, then yes, exactly as you say, you can combine it with other information in a scripts. You can also do it the opposite way of you you can provide more information to Elm Review. Mm. by adding it to the right. configuration or by you, you could generate yeah. yes. that information into 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 elm code so for instance uh, that's what this is what we do for detecting unused css classes uh in our workplace we take the t- css files and we generate an elm file that the elm uh config- elm review configuration then fetches through through simple imports so right. you could again Brilliant. use Elm CodeGen for that. Uh, we, did, we chose to have something simpler, but right, yeah, especially because it's older than Elm CodeGen or Elm Review CodeGen Pages. Yeah, exactly. Problem solved. Elm Review CodeGen Pages CodeGen Review. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know that, that, that's maybe one of those uh, pitfalls that we have with the Elm community, where we we call everything. Based on what it does, like Elm Cogen. Okay, it does Cogen. Elm Review, it reviews. Uh, whereas, whereas you have something like React. Oh, that's a cool name. It's not like it reacts to something. Right. But yeah, maybe here, like, it would be interesting to have a, a cool name like Elm. I don't know how to make cool names. Elm Linguini. Exactly, yeah. Elm Spaghetti. I mean, if it's to find uh, problems in your code base, like spaghetti code. Spaghetti code. Yeah. It's a spicy meatball. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) plenty of projects that are named that way for some reason. (laughs) So, yeah, if you're missing some information, you can can try to combine it uh, in one way or another. That will work. I like your idea a lot to, um, like you said, either code gen a file which is imported into your elm review rule or or you could like code gen something into your elm review configuration file and then pass that data in Mm -hmm. yeah or you could use elm review pages code gen (laughs) (laughs) i think we should add cm at the the end of that now (laughs) just to make it longer And I'm sure such a complex project would need a manager or a factory or something, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So an- another... So uh, actually, if we go down the route of what 
Elm Review can uh, give you as information, it can go pretty far. Like w- one experiment that I that I tried was uh, generating the docs.json file for for packages or for any kind of projects, but yeah, mostly packages, uh, which is like basically the summary of the packages documentation. And that is right. what the Elm Review, uh, sorry, the Elm Packages website uses to show the mm-hmm. documentation of a, of a package. Right. And if you use Elm Duck Preview, that's also what it uses under the hood. Mm-hmm. So, right. So I figured like, well, as a proof of concept, and this is kind of what I played around with to, to test things, I can generate that docs.json file, which is what the compiler does. Right. Uh, what does the Elm compiler also generate? Well, it generates <laughs> JavaScript code huh. based on the okay. dependencies. Crazy, yes, yes. Based on uh, <laughs> the Elm code. <laughs> and I'm like, technically, maybe, maybe with the limitation of how much JSON you can really output, <laughs> right. potentially you can right. uh, write an Elm compiler right. using Elm Review. Whoa. So interesting. The, yeah. The Elm and Elm compiler could be made in Elm review. That's a that's a cool concept. Very interesting. Whether it will work in practice, I don't know. But yeah. that said, like if I'm thinking if I ever want to make a make Elm compile to something else than JavaScript, like this mm-hmm. could be a pretty easy way to to get started. Like you don't yeah. have to read files, you don't have to right. do all those things. Just take all the information from the Elm code and give an, make an output, and maybe you'll be pretty far off. Yeah, and and I mean, if you want to bridge the gap between Elm and other contexts, it's a pretty good start for that too. I'm not sure if it would like help you. I don't think Elm review would help you resolve. Maybe maybe it would be fine. Like if if you wanted to. Do some code generation task. For example, like for my old Elm TypeScript interrupt project, I extracted information with the help of what's that project called? Elm Elmi to JSON, which extracts information from the sort of binary stuff in the Elm stuff folder. And I used that to get the types of all of the ports for the project. But then I also had to do some static analysis to resolve which aliases pointed to which types so that I could turn them into actual primitives that I could send through ports and then build decoders based on that. Yeah, th- that's exactly one of the use cases where I could see Elm Review being used uh, instead of a uh, custom tool or custom script. Whether it will do it better than another tool, probably not. It's like Elm Review is not that fast, unfortunately, but... Maybe I'm self-deprecating here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll have to suppress your self-deprecations you're in. I, w- I will try to <laughs> to do so, but it's like it, trying to impose rules on myself is, is really hard, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's pre- a pretty powerful use case, though. And I guess, I guess, yeah, you totally could build that lookup table that resolves a type alias to what it actually points to. You, you could totally do that with Elm Review visitors. So, so yeah, I guess it's, um, like 
The ability to prevent an extra extract, the prevent extract function that lets you turn an error into something that will halt the extract process is really cool because you can have certain constraints where you say, this rule requires, for example, type annotations for these things, which, yeah, exactly. you know, you, you didn't mention it explicitly, but when you're saying that Elm Review has the ability to generate the docs.json, which is what uh, generates the package documentation for Elm packages, Elm Review doesn't currently have the ability to do type inference, but it doesn't need that because Elm packages, in order to be publishable, must have type annotations for all of their top-level functions. Yeah, for everything that is exposed, at least. Everything exposed. So you can have constraints like that, and you can say, hey, I'm only able to operate on things that you have given explicit type annotations for. But you can do all sorts of um, code generation tasks for this, like kind of bridging, you know, types without borders stuff to kind of connect different paradigms to each other. So that's pretty cool. Actually, I haven't mentioned why I, I made this feature in the first place. So I had a a project idea that is not Elm Review, where I would use Elm Review, and which I've kind of put a lid on at this moment, or put a, put to to pause. Like I, I actually bought the uh, a domain name, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. expired this week. So I'm not oh. sure <laughs> I'm gonna get to it soon. Yeah. But basically, I want to show how secure the Elm package ecosystem was. I may, might have mentioned this during the Christmas episode where we did mention uh, Elm Review's extracts feature. So the idea is that like there's not a lot of security issues. There's a few that I fixed a year ago uh, with regards to virtual DOM and XSS or cross-site cross scripting um, issues. Um, and I wanted to know like where... Do we have any packages in the Elm ecosystem that are making that are abusing this this feature or this sorry this security hole? So what I did is I I went through the the packages and I figured well which ones are depending on Elm slash HTML or Elm slash Virtual DOM uh, which could be using these these uh, problematic fe- uh, these problematic functions which have these security issues and I will notice well. Most of them are not, but a lot of them are transitioning the problem. So the, the problem was if you, if the, one of the problems was using virtual DOM dot node NS. So NS stands for namespace. So it's a regular, like HTML dot node, which takes three arguments, which is the tag name. So like div or span or button, then a list of attributes and a list of children. Uh, and the functions that are that have this ns in their name, they also take a namespace, which is like a specification mm-hmm. URL. I'm, right. I actually right. didn't get what what that was. Some XML schema URL thing. Yeah. 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 For right. instance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there there was a problem where these were not checked correctly. One of the arguments was not checked correctly. So. Uh, what I noticed was a lot of these packages that were using these functions, they were taking, they, was, they were passing as arguments things that were themselves taken as arguments. So the first argument that I needed to check for node ns was itself an argument to this function. So if I wanted to see whether a function was using the security issue, then I needed to check which ones were using this function. 
but that was potentially in a different package. So what I did was I, uh, I started working on this data extractor um, behind the scenes in a, in a branch of, uh, of the project uh, on my computer. And I extracted the information of which functions are using these, these functions that are vulnerable uh, and I'm making a list of those. And then whenever I visit an, uh, another package, I took all the vulnerable functions that uh, they depend on because mm, they have right. um, virtual DOM uh, as a dependency or they have this other intermediate package that have this dependence, the, these dependency issues, so, so these uh, vulnerabilities, and so on and so on. And the idea was, well, I'm just going to e- extract everything and at some point I'm going to be able to find out whether... They are one of them is misusing something. Uh, I never completed the the research. Well, so, so far I haven't been able to find any problematic use, at least. So yeah. that's very positive. Yeah. And now now these issues are fixed anyway. So uh, yeah, my idea was to make something that uh, showed how many vulnerabilities there were in in Elm and in its package ecosystem, and the highlight would have been oh there. There are zero issues. Yeah. In the- <laughs> just, just make a website that says zero. And yeah, and, and, and now <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, companies pay me to have a certification that says, "Hey, I'm using uh, Elm, and we are aware of all the security issues in your package ecosystem." Like basically, I was trying to do an audit of right, the ecosystem. Right. Um, and trying to monetize that somehow, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Turns out I I, I lost uh, interest in, in that. I don't know if it if it would be interesting financially. If your company thinks it would be interesting, let me know. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, uh, prefer working on Elm Review directly, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, that was why I started making it. Like I needed to extract information from a package to give to other packages, to, to the review of other packages, so and so on and so on. So, yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, there it, it does open up so many doors. Like the the security vulnerability checking is like, I mean, there are some interesting projects in the JS ecosystem these days checking for security vulnerabilities. But it's just so much easier to get assurances around things like that with Elm and with Elm Review and Elm Review Extractors. It's a really cool space and code code quality. Like, I mean, we don't really have much by by way of code quality tools in the elm community we have elm review right i mean those are tools that help ensure code quality but not code quality tools in the sense of like giving you a code quality report to try to you know i mean of course like unused functions and things like that are a code quality metric but it's it's sort of like stops being a code quality metric when the tool just fixes it for you and <laughs> yeah. then like it, it, it's just well, a static the, analysis tool yeah the, the metric is always zero because it fixed everything exactly yeah, exactly <laughs> but that would be really cool to have like a suite of code quality tools to look at where to refactor yeah so i remember talking to the author of elm analyze uh matt's he was really liking the direction of Elm Review and he thought it was a great project, so that made me happy. And he was thinking, well, potentially, I could now make Elm, Elm Analyze use Elm Review under the hood and make things like dashboards uh, or code quality metrics. And So exactly this idea. So yeah, I, th- I think it's possible. Uh, yeah, what needs to be shown, what, what is interesting. 
that's that remains to to be to invest to be investigated yeah so many interesting things to explore here um one thing we would be remiss if we did not mention unit testing there's really not too much to say on this point other than you can do it you can write unit tests for your data extractors <laughs> if you have tests then they will uh elmer views testing framework will force you to um sh to explain how the data extract will look like really yep but basically elmer views testing framework is like if there's anything to, that we can check we will check it whoa i did not know this i uh I'm proud to say I did not know it because I have not encountered this situation before because I really like writing tests for my Elmer V rules. <laughs> but yeah. wow, that's cool. Yeah, I mean if you have uh if your if your rule provides a fix, then you will have to uh say how it's it's fixed. Uh if you say, well, there's an error, it will say, well, what are the message and details uh and where is that error? And basically, yeah, everything that we can check, we check. Um, and I think that sometimes it's annoying because you'd have to write a lot of things, especially for data extracts. Like maybe it's a bit too much. Like I could imagine adding a feature that says, please don't force me to, to write a data extractor. But, uh, so for in general, the, the idea holds very well. I think it's, I personally see it as a positive. It, it has worked for my rules at least. Yeah. You could potentially, have something that like allows you to assert on the data extractor or something, you know? So if you want to look at a subset of the values or something like that, I don't know. It, it's, it's an interesting point, but yeah, currently what it does is you say review.test.expect data extract. And then you give like a JSON string that you expect it to, to return for your extractor. So yeah, I could imagine if if you have like very rich information that could could become tedious, but but it's a great feature. Yeah, in general, the the test cases you use your your, your rules on um, are pretty small, so I think it's manageable. But yeah, I, I can absolutely mm -hmm, imagine it will be mm -hmm. a bit too much. So if you you're hitting that and genuinely it's annoying, mm -hmm. open an issue. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So another. Use case, I, I can really see this being used, but I, I think it might also be, or this data extract uh, idea, but I think it might be like a bit too, it, that it will not work perfectly, but I, I would like, like to see an investigation in this, is for explaining things. You know, for instance, one, one of the things that were, where people can uh, get confused is when you have uh, update functions where you have one message uh, that triggers a command, that triggers another message, which in turn tr triggers another command, and so on and so on. So, for instance, if you have, if you need to process a payment, there's a lot of steps to that, uh, and it can be hard to to figure out in which order these messages come in. And I would love to see a diagram that shows in which order these things are applied. And I'm thinking that using Static analysis, we could make this diagram. We're using Elm Review data, data extractors. You get all the information and you now make it a diagram. And I think you, you can, you can do a, di a diagrams for a lot of things. Uh, like e even, for instance, like uh, as I mentioned, the import modules before. Well, if you 
group them nicely, if you format them nicely, if you remove all the unnecessary details, this can now become an overview of your project that you can show to newcomers to your projects. It can be, it can become documentation that you can force to always be up to date. So th this is something that I would like to to see some exploration as well in. For the, for the example for the update, it's a lot more local, right? It's like well, I want to get information for this module for this function. Maybe it could even be like explaining how the HTML will look like and how it interacts with or which buttons, for instance, will trigger what messages. I don't know. But that w the part where I'm like, this might not work very well is because you're probably going to have to compute that for your entire project, which sounds like a lot when you're only interested in a specific part. You're sp only interested in the if the diagram for this one module or this one function so maybe the data extract should ha should take a an argument yes something like Cogen takes information in which gets a lot gets very tricky in terms of um trying to cache the results but it, it could be doable in, in practice like just if we don't care about elm review being slower this could be done, definitely. So th this is something I, I think could be pretty cool. I, I think Richard Feldman also talked about this in for Rock, where they want people to, to be able to build tools for their packages. And then whenever you install a package, you also get like editor integrations that help explain things. Like, I, I don't remember if this was an example, a possible example, but uh, you could imagine your you're adding in rock slash HTML package, and now you can have a preview of the HTML uh, in your editor. Or you have uh, a color package, and you can have a color picker in your editor. I don't know, things like that. And yeah, I think I could see the same thing with Elm Review, but like performance-wise, this will not work. And I know you've talked about like having language server-like. Yes, yes intents or actions using Elm review and yeah it would be nice to, to to go that way i think but like maybe we should have an intervention like that Elm review is doing too much right now <laughs> but it, th these would be interesting explorations i think it, yeah it does make i i mean the extract functionality makes Elm review feel more like a platform which i think is a great thing my my sort of ai experiment where I'm trying to build like a type solver um, that replaces certain debug.todos. That's one of the things I'm doing is I'm I'm actually like extracting the range of a debug.todo and then the relevant context around it of which things are in in scope there. So that the type solver can go and do its thing and then pass that back to Elm Review and give it the range that it's solved for. And that gives guardrails to the GPT prompt. So it, it's not just going and modifying your entire code base. It's only modifying the part you gave it permission to build an implementation for. And it ran the Elm compiler on it to make sure it type checked and all that, right? But so it's, it's actually going back and forth to Elm review where it extracts from Elm review, runs a script, and then sends the results of that back to Elm review to perform a replace rule. A fix. A pretty, pretty interesting possibilities there. Or we could just give the entire 
code base to an AI, and then it would do the same thing that AI would do. <laughs> Just like a lot easier. That's true. Give it, give it five years. We'll we'll yeah. see where we are then. Oh, you you pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a collaboration to be had between our traditional static analysis and our uh, our more modern artificial intelligence approaches. Yeah, I was thinking. I've I've mentioned this idea before of like for a phantom builder extracting like a diagram that shows you like the the as a state machine what are the possible states that this builder api can go through yeah exactly like state machines are a perfect example it's very easy to to draw there are tools for that so you just need to output to this good format like dots or mermaid i'm sure do that yeah exactly you just need to figure out what information you, you want a state diagram for and extract it, and you're good to go. Yeah. Sky's the limit. I mean, there's so much cool stuff we could build. So, um, yeah, again, if you build some cool stuff, let us know. Tweet at us. Yeah, if you want to get started with this feature, uh, we will link the article that I put on my blog, uh, which is called Gaining Insight into Your Codebase with Elm Review. So, read that and otherwise read the with data extractor and otherwise read the documentation for with data extractor in Elm Review's code base or Elm Review's package documentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Brilliant. Let us know what you, what you come up with. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, thanks again for the great feature and uh, you're in until next time. Until next time. Until next time.